You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. Today, I have two Unusually Well-Informed guests. Adam Trent was my first guest on the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast, and this is his third appearance. Adam is an IT professional in higher education. Welcome back to the show, Adam. Thanks for having me, Tim. My pleasure. And my other guest is Fabio Biancolin. This is Fabio's second time on the show. Fabio is a professional engineer and project director. Fabio, welcome back. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We're going to talk about something called non-fungible tokens, which is a subject related to the blockchain or that relies on the blockchain. And it's a way for people to market digital assets such as art. And Adam has experimented with this a little bit, hoping to uh, change the world of digital art with his contribution. How's that going, Adam? Thanks for asking, Tim. So uh, I started uh, last night in trying to import a digital piece of art, and I'm still at it. I thought it would be a couple of clicks, but there are, in fact, many steps involved. And what's, what's tripping you up? What do you think is going on there? So I attempted to use a uh, free platform, and maybe that was my first mistake. Um, but it seems that they're trying to keep the barriers to entry as low as possible. And this has been marketed as a way to do your first NFT just to get the hang of it. And I'm using a platform called Mintable. And it seems that either the platform is not working well, or it's choking on the number of people that are attempting to upload things because the upload screen just keeps going and going and going. And I've attempted roughly six different times to try to upload uh, different formats of the digital art and using different options on the website. Uh, and I have been unable to complete the upload. So it's a little frustrating, but uh, you know, maybe, maybe I just did it at the wrong time. So I'm wondering if this is a harbinger of things to come, because whenever you start on a new platform, I mean, I, I realize NFTs aren't really a platform, but a, a new technology where people can express themselves, the people who show up first, whether it's blogging or podcasting or YouTubing or maybe NFTing, it's always good to be first. And that's where all the profits are. And everybody thinks after that, oh, look, I can make lots of money there, but it actually gets harder and harder. And the, the quality of the material has to go up all the time. I think they try to pitch some of the things that they're selling as high quality items to begin with. So I'll give you an example. When I first went on Mintable uh, yesterday, so we're, we're in March, 2021, and it appeared that one of the things that they were featuring a uh, sale on was um, an ancient piece of art. And so the idea is that you purchase this NFT and not only do you get the digital version, the scanned copy of the art, but the 
buyer will also receive the actual painting itself. Mm. Uh, and so there seems to be, you know, a digital and a physical component that is associated with, with this purchase and sale. And so to me, right away, I felt like there's a certain amount of legitimacy because if I were to bid on this particular uh, piece of art, I would actually get something tangible back. So maybe I should back up a little bit for the benefit of the people who haven't looked into NFTs and, and talk a little bit more about what they are. Um, so the, the, the term non-fungible, the way I understand it is, it means that you can't uh, replace one with the other. The example that's often used is playing cards or, or um, sports memorabilia cards. Uh, if you have one, and especially if it's serialized, that's unique. You can't just, if, if it burns up, you can't get the exact same thing again. So what you were trying to do is basically make a non-fungible token for your artwork, but not really for your artwork because you weren't, in this case, agreeing to send anybody the physical artwork. You were actually giving somebody the rights to say that they had the the first version of the digital file like wh what are they buying if they were buying your work adam so there are a couple of different ways that um, a piece of digital art um, through an nft could become somewhat desirable and one of the angles is uh, you make it a series of collectibles so let's say you have you know there are 16 of these digital files out there in the world and no more. And so, you know, if you own all 16, then, you know, you're the proud own owner of the entire set. You've collected them all. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a degree there and there's a number of different platforms that allow you to mint NFTs that uh, try to highlight that point of, of collectibles. And in fact, they, they almost say, you know, an NFT, because of its uniqueness, it is a collectible in of itself. So you don't even have to create an entire set. You can just have one that's unique. The NFT, the, the syntax of what an NFT is, you know, I've only experienced one portion of that. And that is on the Ethereum blockchain, there's a couple of different variations of how you can do this. And it seems that on a single token, you can have lots of pieces of art that are, that are tied to that particular token, but are um, each of them are unique. What what is it that you're promising the buyer when you do that? So uh, the thing that I found is that to sell an NFT, you have a couple of different options. You can sell it at a flat rate. You can sell it on an auction to the highest bidder, or you can sell it at an auction with a certain uh, floor price so, or, or ceiling price. So if somebody pays you know, 10 bucks for this piece of art, then it's automatically sold and the auction expires. So of the three, I, I tried a straight auction. And what I had to do was to provide the original... Uh, digital file. Okay. And I had to provide uh, kind of a thumbnail preview. And the thumbnail preview is what is being displayed on the marketplace. 
and the owner of the per who purchased the NFT gets the original that I deposited onto the marketplace. So the experience yeah. sounds a an awful lot like making an eBay listing. It, it is like an eBay listing with the addition that instead of you coming over to pick up my bicycle at a premium, you actually just get to download it off of eBay. Right. And there's a guarantee that nobody else is going to get the same file as long as I've indicated that, you know, this can only be printed once. You know, I've been I've been reading about NFTs for a little while, and I have to admit, I've been confused about them for a while because the little bit that I've read has talked about the fact that there is no guarantee that you have the only version of something as far as I'm aware. So, for example, um, maybe because of the platform that you were using as, as part of your experiment, they, they created this sort of digital locker, the way that you described, and they, they tied the, um, you know, the NFT token that you created to it. And that's how they're, they're minimizing the chance that others would have that original sort of high res version of that particular digital file. But everything I've read about NFTs say that that that's not always the case at all, that, that that digital file could in fact exist all over the planet. I could have it on my desktop, but what the, what the NFT itself gives you is kind of like the certificate of authenticity or the certificate of ownership or, or the, a the, deed, uh, a, a, a deed that says this digital file, you know, the original of this digital file is mine. It's owned by me, the person who owns this NFT related to that digital file. Even though, Tim, you might have it on your desktop using it as your background or, or uh, you might have it on a screensaver or on a television or, or whatever. And uh, it just limits the fact that you wouldn't have the rights to sell it, right? Because it's an, it's an asset like anything else. And so it could appreciate or depreciate in value. And, and I, as the owner of that NFT tied to that digital asset, now has the right to sell that token tied to that digital asset, thus transferring the, the ownership. But I, I do find it interesting, Adam, that what you said, that you know, the platform that you were, were using is actually trying to maybe help that problem. And maybe that's because people, I mean, we've been buying things, physical things for hundreds of years. And we understand it very much as in Adam has this thing in his hand. I transfer him some money, you know, whether it's through paper or whatever currency. And then he gives me that thing in my hands. It's that, that transfer, that physical transfer that in, in the world of NFTs confused me early on because I said, well, but I can still have that file. I can still have it on my desktop. What does this mean? But I, I think it's the asset angle where the NFT really starts to, uh, well, what's interesting to me is it's almost like another step in civilization. I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but it's a, another step in civilization in that once upon a time we had barter, right? So if Adam had an ax and I had a chicken, we could trade. I'd give him a, you know, because he has an ax, I can give him a chicken and a half, right? And uh, we're happy with that. But one day I want to I trade uh, my chickens and nobody has an ax. So they say, oh, we have this, this thing called coin. We can, I can give you money. And you give me the stuff and then you can give the money to somebody else for an ax. That's a mind bender to somebody who's accustomed to having 
the result of a transaction be a, a physical thing they can actually use, right? So here we are in the same realm as we transition to more and more things being online and more and more of what we buy and sell being ideas, right? So music or movies or memes or pictures or whatever. But what, what's still throwing me off, Adam, you wanted to add? Yeah, I, you know, just to add to that kind of sense of things being really foreign, one of the things I wanted to add is that in order for me to mint an NFT, I had to first um, get set up with a marketplace. That marketplace then told me some options. And one of those options was create my own marketplace or try to list on theirs. And so I had to create a store. Now, if I create a store, if, if you think about when you set up a bricks and mortar, you have to put a logo, you know, you have to invest a little bit of money. And in fact, to get a store going, you have to commit some digital currency. Well, how do you get the digital currency over to the marketplace? Now you have to connect a wallet. Okay, so how do I connect a wallet? I have to get on an exchange that trades in um in you know in cryptocurrency and i have to actually deposit some actual cash into that exchange and then set up a wallet and then i'm good to go that's a heck of a lot of steps for you know just just getting set up as an artist for for an nft let alone a buyer who's interested in buying something like this so i think it's like we're getting to levels of abstraction that it really feels like I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel like Leonardo DiCaprio in, uh, in Inception. Like it's how many layers to this is, uh, is it until I get the, the thing that I think I own? Well, okay. So talking about Inception, this is a little earlier than I was thinking of bringing it up, but there was a theft from the Nifty platform, which is an NFT platform. Um, and what's interesting about it is that the theft seems to have taken place on the platform rather than on the blockchain. So when you talk about all these, you know, I don't know how many times the van has fallen this far, uh, using your inception analogy, but um, if I need to sort of set up an account using fiat money, or no, I shouldn't say that, but I need to set up a, 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 an account with a company an authority, a central uh, entity that will coordinate what goes on between actors on their system. And then once the actors have taken uh, this, you know, I want to buy, I want to buy your art. So I got to create an account on this platform. So do you, you put it up there. I buy it from you. That doesn't get written to the blockchain until much later. I don't know why there's a delay, but there seemed to be some way for Nifty to recover things because it hadn't been put on the blockchain yet. So it's almost like, uh, if you'll permit me an analogy, you can tell me if this doesn't work. It's almost like a bank branch with a bunch of uh, safety deposit boxes. So I've taken it out of your safety deposit box and put it into mine, but there's a camera. Like they are a, the, the bank is aware of what's happening. And if I'm doing it in a way that's not, you know, that you can prove was not your wish, it can be reversed by the bank. They can open up the safety deposit box and put it back. But if they put it onto the cloud, if you will, this idea that this transaction took place, there's no authority there to reverse it. Is that how you understand it? Yeah, that's my understanding. I could see there being a delay between 
you uploading your digital art and it actually getting attached to the blockchain. And maybe that's what I'm going through right now. You know, the 18 hours and still going in, in like, because I think it's trying to write to the blockchain and it's just, it's just chugging along. Um, Now it could also be that perhaps the nifty platform and I'm completely speculating here, but perhaps what they have is the platform is you upload the digital art and then you do the connection with the NFT token a little bit later. Maybe when the auction has actually concluded because a seller has been found, like what's the point of putting something on the blockchain if it has no value because oh. nobody bought it? So, so there, there could be a couple of like administrative things. Especially like that. if it's free, right? Because uh, there's a transaction yeah. fee when you write something to the blockchain. Yeah. So if you want to sell an NFT that is not on a free platform, it'll cost you at minimum uh, Ethereum gas. Ethereum gas is another word for the transactional cost of doing something on the blockchain. And right now that stands at roughly a hundred Canadian for, you know, you move left, you move right, you pay a hundred bucks. So to sell an, uh, an NFT token, not for free, not on somebody else's uh, dime, it's a hundred bucks at minimum. If you want to add a store, you know, there, there's, there's, probably, there's probably a lot more cost there. Okay, this is interesting. And it sort of opens my eyes to um, all the intermediaries you see with um, Bitcoin, for example that you would go to a platform, I guess a brokerage, or what do they call themselves when you, when you connect to a service to, to basically up to, to contribute fiat money with the expectation of getting back coin? Yeah, so, so that is a cryptocurrency exchange okay. and there's a number of them. Uh, there's a couple of them in Canada. There's, there's roughly three. Uh, and those are, at, at least at time of writing, it's, uh, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't mention the names in case the landscape changes, but there, there are also a couple in the United States, and the vast majority of them are in Europe and Asia. And uh, so even when you go to an exchange and you want to consider uh, putting in your fiat money, there's a number of barriers. First, the are you going to conduct business with an exchange that is in Asia or Europe? Um, you know, let's say the fears around trading with China, would you put your personal data on a, an exchange of a, a currency exchange that is run by a Chinese company? Now you may have no fears, but others may say, I feel that because the, my personal data is sitting on a Chinese server, the Chinese government may have access to it. And down the road, that may have some sort of implication for me if, for example, China decides to ban all cryptocurrency. Who, right. who knows, right? So, so you want to, so you start to limit the number of choices that you have with what exchange you want to go to. And say, say you now choose a Canadian or US exchange. In order to contribute your fiat money, there's a fee associated, could be a fee associated with you depositing money and withdrawing money, because how else is the exchange going to make money? Right. Now, what's more is that they also uh, gain money on arbitrage. 
when you buy or sell cryptocurrency, there's a different fee between buying and selling. And if you think about a currency exchange, like at the airport, the US dollar and Canadian dollar, like even though they may be at par, if you were to do that transaction a hundred times, you'd be out of money. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so same thing here. So, so if you're buying something, you know that you're not getting the exact rate that is being posted. You're getting charged maybe five percent of the of the thing that you're buying. So, so, yeah. so let me let me ask you this because one of the things we were uh, Fabio and I were hoping to talk about. Maybe I'll bring Fabio under the discussion here. Is the implication of that is that you're dealing with a company that must be registered in Canada or United States, and therefore the tax, you know, the CRA or the IRS knows what's going in and what's going out. Um, and so I'll throw this to both of you. I don't know what happens there, but if I make a million bucks on an NFT, I presume I only need to report that when I convert it into fiat money, if I only turn it into Canadian money. Is that true? No, no, I don't believe so. So, so there's two aspects to this. For, again, from the, from, the, from the research I've done, from the reading I've done so far, where, where things start to get really interesting is the fact that the transactions are done using cryptocurrency. Now, the fun, funny thing is cryptocurrency is a, a little bit of a misnomer because, you know, my Canadian dollar is a Canadian dollar is a Canadian dollar, right? So it doesn't matter which store I go to tomorrow when I wake up, um, my dollar is not going to magically be worth 200%, you know, the way that we've seen Bitcoin rise, the way that we've seen Ethereum rise. So uh, an, an interesting article that I read was talking about the fact that, you know, cryptocurrency is actually an asset upon itself, mm. like very much like a house, very much like any other asset, like a stock, anything else that can go up and down in value in and of itself. So the, um, the idea of using cryptocurrency for a transaction now all of a sudden becomes, so, so think of it this way. So, let's say you own a house and the house is worth $200. And, you know, when you bought that house, originally you bought it for $50. So over the, over the time that you've, you've owned your home, it has gone up $150. $150. It's gone up, you know, two times, three, whatever the number is. So then when you use that, if you're using an asset to pay for another asset, effectively you are, you are disposing of that asset in the eyes of the government. Mm -hmm. So let's not think about it like your personal home, because there are different tax rules for your personal home. Let's assume that you had a, like a, a second home, a, like an investment property or something. Let's use that because the, the numbers are, are much more uh, straightforward there. So when you use that asset to pay for another asset, it's kind of like you sold the home which means the money that you've earned, the capital gain that you've earned, you would have to pay tax on. It's not like taking a $20 bill out of your pocket and then I hand this $20 bill to Tim and say, hey, Tim, here's that you know, $20 I owe you for that painting that you made for me or something. And, and that's the end of it. It's kind of like I, I, I cashed out a stock that went up in value and I, I transferred you that stock mm -hmm. to pay for that painting. So when I transfer you the stock, it's deemed disposed. I have to pay that capital gain. And then you, on the other hand, when you receive that, 
you are now on the hook because that's now income for you and you've got to pay tax on the income. Now, I'm no tax lawyer, uh, but I, I believe that that's, uh, that's how it works. So I'm, I'm no expert in tax either, but my girlfriend is an accountant. So I've heard the term deemed disposition and it comes up, for example, when somebody says, um, I live in my house and I lived in my house for 10 years and um, now I want to rent it out. So it goes from being part of your personal exemption in Canada. We're not taxed on the capital gains on a house, the primary residence, but now it goes from being primary to not primary. That's what they call a deemed disposition. And you would have to have somebody estimate the value of your house at that point. Um, but what you're saying is I don't need to worry until I actually convert. Uh, see, this is where I'm getting fuzzy because where is the, I understand you're saying like a deemed disposition would happen when I trade Bitcoin for something else. Yep. It doesn't sound like I can be taxed on Bitcoin going to the stratosphere until I do something with it. Adam, you wanted to come in on that? Yeah. So if you go, say, from Bitcoin to Ethereum, every time you do that transaction, you, that, that is considered capital gain or capital loss. And, and I also want to say I'm not a tax <laughs> expert. So you know, take, take this for entertainment value and not as uh, any kind of advice. But generally speaking, the Canada Revenue Agency has posted some guidelines around how they view the disposition uh, and the purchase of uh, cryptocurrency. And you know, I would generally suggest that people might want to read that or seek professional opinion to have a good understanding of what that actually means, because that may impact your, you know, your taxes at the end of the year. Absolutely. Especially if you sell a, a uh, what is it? Boopsie, beepsie. What's, what's that artist? Beeple. Beeple. Beeple for millions of dollars. You could get a real uh, surprise shock after you bought that yacht with all that money. I am really confused about what happens to things when it's on a, you know, on a worldwide scale. So I don't, I don't know where that artist exists, where that piece of art was created. In but the U.S. It's okay. So in the U.S. So, you know, and this is my ignorance here. I don't know if I were to purchase that piece of art, if I'm paying capital taxes in the United States or capital taxes in Canada, or does it depend on where my wallet sits, my exchange sits, or which marketplace I bought it in? I mean, like- I imagine it depends on what jail they can throw you in. And <laughs> since it's a Canadian jail- I, I, but but I got to tell you, I think there's a market for your girlfriend to, you know, advise people on how to deal with cryptocurrency because it's when you add NFTs and, um, you know, the visa is trying to accept cryptocurrencies. I think people need to have a really good understanding of the financial implications of that because it is the, the guidance is like it's so thin on detail because this um, industry or this kind of marketplace is expanding so rapidly and changing so quickly. Fabio? So another, another interesting tidbit, Adam, to add on that layer is, the, the, again, the little bit I've read about this says that it's very, very difficult to track a, a piece of cryptocurrency from purchase all the way to sale. So when, when you buy a, a home, a rental property, a cottage, name it, um, there, there's a clear record that says, you know, this, this property, this address, 
was purchased on this day at for this value. And then 20 years later, when it's sell, selling for three times the value, the records go all the way back. And so the, the government is able to calculate what that, that gain is. My understanding is that with cryptocurrency, there is the, the data is not as good in that you it, it's very easy to tell when you've sold, but you know, which which cryptocurrency did you sell? So let's say I bought one Bitcoin in 2015, I bought another one in 2016, I bought another one in 2017, and then I sold one in 2021. Well, which one did I sell? I, I you know, I, I'm not sure what the tax rules are around that one. Go ahead, Adam. Yeah. So uh, from my understanding, there are a few um, cryptocurrencies on different blockchains that promise full anonymity. And, you know, that could be theoretical because maybe there's no such thing. But the, I think we can safely say there's a spectrum of how anonymous a particular cryptocurrency is. And the most popular ones, Ethereum and Bitcoin, if you're a big enough of a whale, rest assured that authorities will track down all the transactions. Uh, you know, it's every transaction is in the decentralized uh, blockchain. And when, you know, exchanges have to, they have to abide by uh, the know your customer rule. So you will provide, you know, government ID to each individual. So every wallet is attached to a taxpayer who, you know, the government can essentially determine whether or not they've made certain transactions uh, because, you know, the, these exchanges are also um, insured by, uh, you know, financial, financial companies. And so I have no doubt that any exchange you trade on, the government is aware that you're making those. So yeah, know, that's really interesting, because I was wondering about that, this idea that um, although it's hard to falsify, the blockchain is actually visible. So presuming you have, I, I guess it'd be a wallet ID. Yeah. Um, so long, as long as you, because when you create that wallet, you have to you have to connect it to your what we call in Canada the SIN number, the social insurance number. Um, because it's connected to my social insurance number, if the government was curious enough, they could go to the the uh, crypto exchange and say, "Look, I need to know what's going on with this account," and they could conceivably read it off the blockchain. It's almost like archaeology, right? Or paleontology. Like you just have to dig deep enough and you can find anything in there. But do, do all the exchanges require that level of detail? Is there nowhere in the world where you could buy a Bitcoin literally anonymously? anonymously? I mean, okay. So for example, I tried the exchange Binance and Binance was a Chinese company and uh, I think they moved over to the Maldives or something. And recently, Binance has been in the news about, you know, some kind of fraudulent activity. So there, there's that, the warm and fuzzies about uh, that particular exchange. But it's also one of the most popular in the world. And even there, one of the first steps for me to set up an account was, you know, someone speaking in a foreign language. Um, and I understood it to be essentially move your head left and right, up and down so that we can take a 3D digital scan of your head and then present your you know, government ID. Now, 
There may certainly be exchanges that don't require this level of information, but I'm not sure how long those would last. I think that there's enough money in there that people are trying to go legit as opposed to scamming people out of of, uh, cryptocurrency. I think the end game there, Adam, is that they're going to sell that scan of your head as an NFT. That's how they make their millions. (laughs) As long as I get a cut. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of getting a cut, uh, one of the fascinating things about NFTs is, and I I guess the thing about Ethereum in particular that I hear is it's great for writing uh, digital contracts. So you have a lot of flexibility about what can happen with an NFT. It could just be as simple as if I own the NFT, I get to sell the NFT. We're done. But it can be more complicated than that. There can actually be sort of a, a lien on that NFT where every time I sell it, the original artist gets a cut, which I think has some really fascinating implications, right? Because if you're a new artist, you, you are not going to get a lot for your art. I mean, this first piece of art, Adam, may only fetch you $10,000. But as your fame grows and that th- same thing exchanges time and time again, and it gets into six, seven figures, now it's only fair that you would get a cut of that as far as I'm concerned. One could argue you get a cut of future sales of future things and notoriety is a good thing. But that, that's an interesting uh, aspect of this. I, I presume because this is a, a free platform, that's not something they offer, right? You talked about it's basically fixed price. Auction, auction. or auction with floor with or ceiling. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they do actually offer uh, a resale commission. Hmm. So, and now I don't know if it's a one time because the option again, wasn't very clear. You know, if I only get the, an extra 5% or 10% um, once it's been sold once, or if it's in perpetuity that, you know, every time it fetches a particular price, I get a five or 10% cut um, for all for, for eternity, you know, um, can I, can I just ask, like, when you create yeah. this object to sell as an NFT, or actually, let's be accurate here. I think we can agree what you're selling is just an NFT, but you must have to say something along the lines of, I promise not to make another NFT with this file or like you could, cause the original artwork was a, was physical, correct? No, it was digital. Uh-huh. And, and so yeah, that goes back to Fabio's point and to your point, Tim. It's the, especially for a piece of digital art. Yeah, the, so the main thing that I found is that artists essentially say, yeah, it would be really crappy if I sold something and um, indicated that they retain copyright, but I also kept a copy and I'm intent to make additional copies. That really defeats the purpose. So, so I think the, you know, starting with the original artist, it all comes down to intent. If the artist intends to sell multiple copies, then, you know, the moral code of NFT would be to indicate that this is one of 16 or one of 10,000 copies, or you don't get ownership. Ownership remains with me. The only thing that you get is this particular enhanced high quality version of what's out there on the internet. Now, now before, before we continue, I, I was 
thinking a little bit more about this notion of digital art. And, and maybe it's because of our demographic that we don't, sometimes we have trouble grasping certain, certain aspects of this, but um, I'm, I'm going to bring it to video games. In a video game, I, you know, I want to have an avatar. So I want to have a logo of, you know, what my character is on the PlayStation Network or Xbox, Microsoft, whatever. And then within um, every time I play a video game, I may want to buy some digital assets. Now, like I can't sell those digital assets to anybody else. Once I buy it from Sony or from Microsoft, they've got my money. And how did that transaction happen? Well, at the end of the day, it was a digital transaction for a digital um, component. So you could argue that an NFT can have, you know, an unlimited number of copies, but they're worth very little. I'm like, I'm willing to pay 50 cents to the artist who created an avatar that I can freely use anywhere and not be worried about copyright. So, so maybe it's less a matter of scarcity, but more a matter of, you know, an artist being able to collect revenue, some sort of revenue to a greater degree uh, without the middlemen. So that if I cre constantly create avatars and that's my job, then maybe through NFTs, I have a mechanism to collect 50 cents every time somebody decides to buy one off me. So this returns to another question I had that I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around. It seems like the NFT craze right now, that there's only two ways to justify paying money for, well, I guess three ways. One is you just want it, right? Uh, I have, um, you know, I have a proof that I supported the artist, Adam Trent. I have proof. And I, I was the first to step up. I'm the one who, I'm the tastemaker around here. I paid money to put a stake in the ground to say, this is art and it's valuable and I want it. So that's one reason. The other reason is I'm going to sell it to somebody else for a higher price. And the third reason, which we haven't explored, is I can use that license for economic gain. So thinking about stock photography, right? What am I doing? I'm buying something that's far from unique, but, but, but what I'm saying is I have the right to use it now. I have the right to use it on my website or as a thumbnail on my video. Is there any mechanism in NFTs because it seems like NFTs would be a great way, uh, a great marketplace for stock photography and stock video for that purpose, which I haven't heard anybody talk about. Is that, is that going on? Because it, it would require a mechanism to say, I give you copyright for these circumstances. Well, I have not come across um, uh, specifically photography, but having somebody in that space, I just, it's a matter of time, Tim. You just, you thought, you thought of it first. It just hasn't happened yet. Fabio? So, you know, what you guys keep saying keeps not jiving with what I've read. You know, when you say, you know, I own that digital art and now I can do with it as I please. I, I did not believe that when I, when I, reading and learning about NFTs, that, that the purchase of the NFT does not convey the, the copyright or exclusive use rights with it. So I don't know. I mean, now maybe, maybe it's because it's evolving. Maybe we're in the early days and maybe that's 
where we're headed. Or maybe there are going to be different kinds of NFTs where, you know, this type of NFT is, you know, the, the, the asset certificate, the certificate of ownership type NFT. The other is more like what, uh, what Adam was talking about earlier. You know, there's a digital locker and I have access to it and it's, and it's mine. And um, so I, I'm, I, I'm not a hundred percent clear on whether, you know, what rights do you have when you buy an NFT for a piece of digital artwork, for example, I'm not 100% clear on what what your rights are with respect to that digital artwork. Are you, are you guys up on that particular piece? Certainly well, that's why I, I was um, yeah. that's why I was asking Adam because I thought that maybe there would be some section where he would have to commit something to the potential buyer. Um, but it doesn't sound like okay. So you're actually showing us. Okay, so oh, okay, this is very interesting. So Adam is showing us the screen from the NFT platform he was trying to upload to, right, Adam? Yeah, that's right. This is on Mintable, and it's the gasless, meaning completely free. I'm not paying any fees. And when I uh, try to mint the NFT, it gives me the option of uh, to transfer copyright when purchased and to allow a buyer to resell this particular item. Uh, now, I've tried um, the paid version as well, and it's the exact same options. Interesting, okay. So there, there is something that you're buying something, the potential economic benefit of a copyright over that item. So, I mean, lawyers are gonna have a field day with that simple checkbox, right? Because there's a million questions outstanding, like. Does this mean I can sell prints? Uh, does this mean I can do, uh, you know, vinyl wraps for my uh, fleet of vans with this picture? Like, there's a lot of lot of questions that come from that, but it'll be interesting to see how that unfurls. So that's that's really interesting, by the way. Thank you for sharing that, Adam. I I was curious about that. So so it looks like there's an option for both. You, if you chose to, you could uncheck that checkbox and say no. I'll, I'll sell this to you, but I retain the copyright. I'm the one who decides what happens to this or whether it gets wrapped around a van that has to come back to me. But, you know, somebody out there would own the NFT associated to it. Which is bizarre. What's the point of having the NFT except to say you have it? It's exactly. the greater fool theory at that point. Yeah. Unless it comes back to that first thing, which is just, you know, like uh, rich people, right? Want it, want it, got it, got it, right? You just, you got to buy everything in sight. You have the money. Why not? So let me just show you one more example, and I'm going to, for the unfortunate, um, it's, it's too bad we can't share this on uh, for, for our viewers but, uh, or listeners, but I just wanted to highlight, it's a very specific point in time, but um, today um, on Mintable, one of the things that is being sold is a picture that looks like it's um, a, a blend of, you know, the, um, the Big Ben and also the Scream and all kind of combined together into a digital format. It's currently selling. Um, the bid is around 50,000 US dollars. And the item says that there's a, there's a royalty of 5% on secondary sales. The copyright is transferred, there's a downloadable file, and it's resellable. 
And the uh, buyer of this NFT will receive high resolution PNG download of 23 megabytes. So the owner can also uh, request an original one of one print signed and framed by the artist. And it also specifies that there's only one of a kind piece and only one NFT that's been created in its existence. So if we're talking about terms and conditions, it's essentially a handshake over the internet to, you know, you know, there's, there's nothing preventing that person from printing it and hanging it on their wall. The buyer would never know unless they went into the buyer's, uh, into the seller's home. And even then, who is Jamie Creamer? Like you don't have the first and last name. So, so just to talk a little bit to those points, I think the one piece here is that I, I, I guess in my age category, perhaps I would really prefer to have a physical copy. And maybe this is what gives me the right to purchase this particular, um, you know, copy. Well, what's interesting, there's a couple of observations there. One is that's probably a vector graphic. So this idea that you can buy an enormous file, they could make it 10 times as big. It's just a, you're just taking a slider and saying how big you want it to be. So that's not terribly impressive. The idea that you get a, a, photo, a signed print, I don't know, like, like you say, we're, we're victims of our uh, birth in the corporeal plane. Um, we're accustomed to buying things, not digital things. So it's reassuring, I guess, to say that you have that. Um, but I think you're right. What's really interesting is, first of all, a lawyer would drive a truck through these conditions. And secondly, are these conditions captured in the blockchain? Probably not, right? I don't know if there's a mechanism to capture that. So you're relying on the existence of this platform if there's ever any questions down the road. Does the, um, I, I wonder, does the original artwork exist out? I, I can't imagine that the artwork itself exists sitting on the blockchain as well, does it? I mean, the NFT does, but the artwork itself would be the responsibility of the purchaser to then safely store. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. That's my impression, yeah. So, so... I'm sure that in this particular case, there was somebody that created that digitally and had to upload it to this particular platform. So they're still retaining the file. And then once it's been put into that digital locker, the buyer will then have access to that digital locker. But does that digital locker stay forever like a, uh, you know, the, the vault in a bank where in a safety deposit box where that, you know, where my my uh, big scream artwork is now sitting for all of eternity. Is that how this works? As long as Mintable exists in, you know, in the, on the internet, I would say yes. But it's not part of the blockchain. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't think sure it is. Part of the, I, because I think the NFT is part of the blockchain. Is the art that is attached to that um, NFT Will is it permanent? I think it is permanent, but I'm not sure. So if we get to the point where where copyright and digital rights management are mediated by this technology, it could get really interesting, right? Because it could disintermediate Netflix. I could 
I could say, look, my, my, the film I produced is on the blockchain. Uh, you can buy it from the blockchain. I can set rules for how often you can watch it or, you know, how many devices you can watch it on. There's all kinds of things I could do. Um, and the, the storage of the media itself could also be on the blockchain too. Although maybe the, it would probably have to be a very different blockchain because it's expensive to put things on the blockchain. If it's just, you want high value information in there. You don't want just the file. Um, But it it is interesting that you could, so maybe that's one of the justifications coming back to our earlier speculation is you wouldn't keep the digital file on the blockchain just because it would be, it would be too expensive to do so right now. Yeah. And then, I mean, you, you then, when you, when you, chase that down, when you follow that logically down the path, um, it's amazing to me how many people, I mean, our world is so heavily digital, right? When was the last time you, that any of us took a, a picture with a camera using film, for example, and then had it printed, right? Everything we do is digital these days, our phones, our computers, this, this podcast we're doing, all digital right from the, from the get-go. And it's amazing to me how many people really do not understand what it takes to maintain and safeguard a digital ecosystem, right? So a file on your computer, a a letter that you wrote to somebody, a, a Word document, an Excel file, any of those things, it's incredible how you know, and I guess maybe with the advent of the cloud, we're gonna skip over that that generation of of requiring a good understanding of how to maintain and safeguard a digital infrastructure. I think maybe it had happened, it had come to the point where it was becoming a problem. And I mean, myself being an IT professional, Adam being an IT professional, we understand that there are there are two types of people in the world, right? People who have suffered a, a data loss and people who are going to suffer a data loss. So, um, but I think now we, we've skipped right past that. So what does that mean now as we go back to digital assets and safeguarding them? So you just paid, like the guy who bought the, uh, the Beeple for 69 million, you know, what is that person going to do to safeguard that $69 million digital asset? Are they just going to, you know, throw it on a thumb drive and stick it in a drawer somewhere? Well, it's not just, it's, you're right. It's not just the asset though. The thumb drive could contain the asset and you can probably get it again. But you, the NFT, that non-fungible token that sits on the blockchain, if you lose access to it, that's it. It's gone. Um, it comes back to that quote from the article about the theft is when it comes to NFTs, possession is 10 tenths of the law, which is a great line, right? You can, unless you can have that, it's, it's almost like we want a certificate, but we're not willing to pay anybody to certify it. And so if there's no platform that does the certification, you can't, you can't even do an insurance claim. That was the big complaint about what was going on on that nifty platform with the, with the theft on the platform. And I, I get the impression again, that's because it hadn't been written to the blockchain yet. They were able to reverse it. Um, but I, I don't know. It just, you wanted to add something there, Adam? Yeah. So I, th- I think the blockchain community has been thinking about this deeply one of the promises I, one of the, like the shiny brochure that I got on block, blockchain is that it's the promise of the new internet. And you think, what the heck does that mean? That's like e- evangelical almost. So 
one of the things that blockchain is attempting to do is to do distributed apps or dApps. So you're like, what the heck is dApps? So the way I think about it in my, in my mind is, you know, we used to do everything on, uh, on big honking servers in our basement. And then we said, well, we can virtualize things. And so that big honking, you know, server is now going to host 30 servers or 300 or 3000 servers. And then we said, you know what, maybe it'll be easier if somebody else manages that whole thing and we go to the cloud. So now that promise of the new inter internet distributed apps is the next evolution in that. And that is using blockchain to distribute code so that your phone, your laptop, whatever device is functioning to perform a particular task, it's using the horsepower of your machine. So instead of it being in the cloud, it's on everybody's devices. And because it's, it's not on any one person's device and, they, and their ability to change that code affects anybody else, it's distributed so that everybody runs the same version so nobody can mess with it. And so that's, that is the promise. And so what does that promise bring? It brings a further decentralization to you know, what assets exist, how you store them, and it's all based on that application layer. What kind of applications are going to hold that particular data? So one example could be that somebody will come up with a DAP, a distributed app that um, holds data. And yeah, it might be really expensive, but it'll be an application that is running on the blockchain, executing code, and maybe the storage is somewhere digitally encrypted somewhere still in the cloud, but maybe there's a bit more of that decentralization and, and like it's not cloud technology anymore. So, so let me let me explore that for a second because um, we're going to talk in a minute about the cost of the blockchain itself in terms of computing power and you know certainly power consumption. But it strikes me that um, keeping a copy of Blade Runner the movie on the blockchain would be prohibitively expensive, whereas one could have like a checksum or some some proxy for that file that um, could secure it that way. That would be the decentralized app that handles that for you. Right. right. Okay. Okay. And then somewhere the file would have to exist and then you'd have to have some protocol to control who can get to it. And then it would have to check with possibly a digital contract on Ethereum to say, oh, well, he's allowed to, or she's allowed to watch that video Bingo. three times. Bingo. Okay. So um, I think we've, Fabio, do you want to add to that? Or shall we, shall we get into uh, the cost of Bitcoin to the planet? And one of the, one of the things that's got people concerned is the way, I mean, I'm, I'm more familiar with, with Bitcoin on this and I'm not terribly familiar with that, but basically what's going on is you have to attempt to crunch a block that will be added to the chain, uh, which contains the last few days of, of transactions. And everybody's trying to, it's like an encryption puzzle and only some of you will get it right. Whoever gets it right first gets to write that block and then they get rewarded with some Bitcoin. That competition means that the winner um, 
has to, basically there's a large investment of 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 resources like whether it's whether it's the computing or the power or the cooling whatever it is you have to invest a lot to write to the blockchain which means some a bad actor would have to invest as much as the entire bitcoin community of miners to for, to falsify a block so it protects the the integrity of the blockchain by doing this the downside is that all those resources are 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 impacting the planet um and depending on which article you read it's it's the the amount of greenhouse gas that london produces or costa rica like you know it's uh, part of the problem is it's hard to estimate with 100% accuracy but are you alarmed by this yes and uh, i would say uh, that is the reason why bitcoin should die mm. because Bitcoin is kind of the originator and yeah, it's the 800 pound gorilla in the market. It has the highest capitalization, but it's also the oldest technology and hard forks, meaning changes to the code have come out and spun out and have gone nowhere. And so I, re I just really see Bitcoin as the originator. You know, of course, we've read that, you know, there's there's been a 20 year history in the newspapers right under our noses and, and blockchain is not is not completely new. But as far as cryptocurrency and getting uh, capitalization, Bitcoin is definitely number one. And then Ethereum is kind of the second generation. And then all these other blockchains um, are the next, you know, version three of the blockchain. And we're going, we're going to keep going. There's going to be version four and version five as the technology continues to improve. And so in what's currently available in distributed in, in blockchain technology, Bitcoin is really a dinosaur. Hmm. So the, here, here, Here's my reaction to that. First of all, I do blanch whenever I think about how much power is being used in the name, uh, electrical power is being used in the name of protecting the blockchain. It's, it's staggering. But what is the alternative? The, if the alternative is the status quo. I mean, for, forever, it's always been that either we build a castle or we build a vault or we build a computer system that's protected by an army of computer people. One way or the other, the, the cat and mouse game between the legitimate owners of things and the people who want to steal it is the legitimate owners have to invest some of their resources to protect their the resources, what they have from people who would steal it. And because the world is typically composed, you know, people will argue about the ratio, but typically composed of mostly legitimate people versus people who would steal that that collectively we can we can marshal the resources that exceed what bad actors can assemble that is still i mean the london itself is half bankers it's not a fair it is a fair comparison i think to say that the greenhouse gas of london is all bankers right now it's their ferraris and their yachts and their big buildings and their vaults and their computer systems are all devoted to protecting resources now it's not that different in my view so I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm quite as alarmed. Fabio, what are you thinking? Well, so interesting, Adam, you, you brought up a couple of really interesting points. The, the one question that I, I'm not aware of is, so when you talk about, you know, blockchain version two, blockchain version three, 
et cetera, et cetera, and as it evolves. I guess my question is, is the core underlying concept of it any different, meaning does the carbon footprint in version five, is it significantly different than the carbon footprint in version two? Or is it more a factor of Bitcoin's success in its widespread usage that is causing it to use, you know, more energy per year than the entire nation of Argentina, which is just like mind boggling. So, so let me just, let me just ask that first question before I go any further. Do you, do you know much about the sort of the evolution of the blockchain tech? So a little bit. So there's a number of questions in there, not just one. <laughs> let me, let me talk a little bit about the, the kind of the longitudinal aspect of time being a factor here. So every couple of years, Bitcoin has a halving event um, that's as in half. So the idea is that it takes twice as much energy now to mint the same amount of coin. And so uh, you require more electricity. And this is part of the reason why Bitcoin keeps going in the news. And this is going to continue to happen until at a certain point, it becomes so astronomically expensive to mine that it's not worth it. And we're constantly nearing that. Part of the reason why Bitcoin is going at a certain price is because of all the miners, all the people that have invested so much money into mining Bitcoin that you know they will make economic decisions on whether or not they're going to continue to mine more depending on how much, what the price is. Because you know there is a cost, like how could you pay for the equivalent of Argentina's energy. Um, you know, you're going to have to have uh, enough capital to, to do that. And so there's a trade-off between mining Bitcoin or mining a different cryptocurrency that brings you different returns. And so if miners start to switch over to a different currency and start to mine that, then, you know, arguably, you know, like there, there is a lot of economics there, right? Like, so if they stop mining, the value is going to increase because the resource becomes more scarce. And so the price goes up. And so there's a higher incentive to keep mining. And so you can arguably, arguably say that we're going to go to the very ends of Bitcoin's halving events, because at a certain point, it's going to be like millions and millions of dollars just to mine one Bitcoin. And that's why people are predicting they're going to say, you know, Bitcoin is going to go to 100,000 because they're basing it on that calculation that as long as it's worth it, somebody's going to keep mining it. Now, on the aspect of uh, different versions of blockchain. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the whole mining process. There are three major mining processes currently in the, digi um, in the digital uh, coin space. First is proof of work, which is what we're talking about, which is Bitcoin. It's mathematical computations. They take a lot of energy, and, but they end up creating coin. The next is proof of stake. Proof of stake is as long as you have enough of a particular coin for you to matter, you're like you know a whale, essentially. You can be a node that confirms transactions and in order for you to be a node you have to hang on to that currency and you can't give it up you can't sell it you can't use something with it and for that you get a little bit of the money a little bit of the you know the gas the transactional cost 
and you get rewarded for it that way. So you start to gain more of the coin. And you know how it's created? It's created procedurally. And there's a reward system that is fair and equitable. And you know that's how it runs. And then the third one is delegated proof of stake. And that's just like proof of stake, with the exception that not every node earns money every time. There's a bit of a lottery, but everyone in that kind of pool gets to vote on what happens next to this particular technology. And so these voting rights and this staking right, the ability to earn more crypto by holding a bunch makes it so that the resource becomes scarce because nobody's selling. Everybody's just buying because they want to gain more control. And so that appreciates in value. And the fact that you're getting a, you know, a percentage cut of all the transactions, there's also you know, incentive there to, to hang on to it. Now, there is a fourth, and that fourth really means that it's not cryptocurrency. And there's been quite, quite a bit of scandal around that in the cryptocurrency world with lawsuits, the you know, Securities Exchange Commission debating whether something is an asset or, or not. Um, uh, so, and that is essentially somebody creates a number of coins and they control how many coins get let out. And, you know, and, and you can have that as open concept or you can have a private company, but essentially it's the crypto blockchain and, and somebody manages the supply. So that's so not- that, in that case, that's almost like digital air miles. Yes. Blockchain air miles, basically. Exactly. But I, I hazard, I mean, it does use the blockchain technology, but is it a cryptocurrency? I mean, the intent, it, like it, it's kind of there, but it's kind of not quite there. So I, I hesitate to call it a, a cryptocurrency. So, so that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. That's uh, very enlightening for me. Where I was headed when I asked the question about the, you know, sort of the next generations, with there being over 6,500 plus different cryptocurrencies around the world, and, you know, the definition of a cryptocurrency is that it's based on a blockchain, so it's immutable and, and so given that there are so many, and if these become more and more popular, I, I realize right now Bitcoin is is the villain because they're the biggest and their chain is so huge and that's why they're using so much power. But you would imagine that if 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 we as a society begin to use digital currency, so I'm not going to say cryptocurrency per se as an asset, but let's just say we use digital currency, even if it's my real dollars, um, then over time you would think that we would spread out to a larger number of these blockchains. And then even just through day-to-day life, more and more transactions are going to happen across a larger, larger scale. And these, these blockchains are going to grow and grow and grow. And we're just, we're seeing the effect of the first one, the, the most popular one, Bitcoin, but in, invariably, does it not mean that we're headed for this massive growth if we continue to adopt digital currencies with, with all of these 65 or 6,700 uh, blockchains potentially creating their own, you know, energy consumption demands, heating and cooling demands, et cetera? Yeah, so I, I would argue that the third generation of cryptocurrency, um, uh, for example, uh, Polkadot, 
it sounds like a funny name, like, you know, something a kindergarten kid would watch. But in fact, Polkadot is really taking the third generation of cryptocurrency by storm. And their promise is that they are the underlying blockchain for all other blockchains. And so what that means is that you can create additional blockchains on top of this one. So it's kind of like a unifier. So when you start to think about, you know, oh, I want stablecoin. Oh, there's Bitcoin. Oh, there's Ethereum. Well, if you could have a platform that it connects them all, then you can build efficiency in how different cryptocurrencies function if they're on vastly different technologies. So people see value in that because, you know, it like it forces the market to be more efficient. And furthermore, it provides this opportunity to break up the blockchain. So if there are some challenges because, you know, this particular version of the blockchain is really too cumbersome, then you can do a soft fork on that particular chain and it'll still be accepted by that underlying technology. Now, I'm, I'm talking a little bit like, um, like it, it's, a, it's a bit out there, but I'm just trying to say that the third version of cryptocurrency and blockchain is essentially um, not just based on lower cost to produce the coin, but there are also efficiencies and functions that really go above and beyond. Like it's that whole inception, like they're going next level, next level, as far as trying to combine technologies and finding new projects and new ways of making uh, blockchain more efficient. So it's not that evil, you know, thing destroying rainforests. So neither of you rallied around my comparison of the cost of Bitcoin to the planet to the cost of the current banking establishment. But I want to I want to I want to replay that a little bit because when I when I use banking services I pay a fee. And one way or the other that fee is attached to the cost of mediating my financial activity, right? It's the same with blockchain. Um, it's just different because it's done much more by computers than by people. Like you, you, there's, there's no, uh, there's no tellers. There's no executives. These are just, you know, people who are able to put together server farms. Um, but what's interesting is I think we're ta- I think we are brushing up against two topics here, right? One is, um, should we use the blockchain period? Because there's a lot of work going on with fiat currencies being put on the blockchain. Singapore has investigated it. Canada is investigating it. I'm sure the Fed is investigating it, although in secret. And part of it, I think, is to get in front of the destabilizing force that a, a extra national currency would create. I mean, governments these days are, are, are funded two ways. One is by taxation. The other is inflation. We all know that, right? Like uh, the amount of money that's being made out of thin air should be so inflationary. The only reason it isn't is because you have so much technology that is deflationary. So it's like two ends of the seesaw. But if it weren't for the meddling that goes on with, with uh, central banks, the, the debt that the, the, the governments hold would, would go to the stratosphere. Right, it would become too expensive to service, so they're they're deliberately uh, devaluing the currency. That's why these extranational currencies that have no authorities 
are so appealing to people because it's like, I'll, I'll be able to keep the value the store of my money will be preserved by this much better than fiat currencies. Um, so let's look at whether we, we want extra national currencies to succeed because what would happen if the Canadian dollar was suddenly not worth anything and we had to rely on Bitcoin? I mean, what is the end game if we all start using Bitcoin? In my humble opinion, there's no future where uh, a digital currency doesn't exist. Digital currency, but the Canadian dollar could be a digital currency. I think it already is. Okay. Like but the, do you. The, the, the $20 bill sitting in my wallet is an artifact. It's oh, a, sure. It's a facsimile of the fact that, you know, I, whatever money I earn, goes into my digital wallet on, you know, a Canadian institution. And whenever I'm paying for chocolates down the street, my digital money is, is, is going. And so whether or not you have some kind of, you know, on-premise system that manages that money or that system is in the cloud or that system is, you know, a decentralized app at the end of the day, you know, the underlying technology means that we're already in a world where we're trading in digital currency. And I think if blockchain is able to show that it is more efficient than the existing technology, then it will be adopted. And so, you know, if I were a young man or a young woman looking for a career, I would be looking for uh, something that will help me learn how to code in uh, some kind of technology that will allow me to participate in, in you know, this kind of technology. Okay, but the, the question I'm raising is, you know, will our children be using the Canadian dollar, assuming they live in Canada, will they be using the Canadian dollar or will they be using... Now, now we can. I, I want to explore the question of whether we would put the Canadian dollar on a blockchain. That's a very interesting thing to speculate about. I want to get into that. But do you think that there will be a, a global set of currencies that replace fiat currencies? So that's the, so that's where you're going. You think it's going to see this is this is. I, I I'd love to hear Fabio's. Uh, yeah, what do you think about this? So. You know, I, I just, maybe one day, maybe one day we'll get there. And maybe it's just the sign of the fact that I'm not, you know, uh, you know, young and wide-eyed as I used to be one at one point in my life. But I, I think to myself that, you know, for a, a country, a G8 country like Canada, the U.S., you know, England, whatever, I, I can't see us moving to a non government controlled digital currency. Now, very possible that the Canadian dollar itself, I mean, much to your point, Adam, you're right. It, I mean, when was the last time your employer handed you a, an envelope full of, of money? That that doesn't happen anymore. It's just a transfer. About that. <laughs> it's only just, when he dances. <laughs> only, I mean, we get, we get that digital transfer in the bank account, just like you said. But I don't know what the remaining steps would be to take it 
from where it is today, which is a combination of both the paper artifact, which of course that paper artifact is really just a representation of what used to be a gold or silver coin, which actually had the intrinsic value right in the actual coin itself, right? So, so we've gone from there to now a different artifact and that different artifact just becomes the digital ones and zeros that I look at when I log into my online banking and such, right? So it, it's not that far of a stretch. So I'm curious, Tim, to hear what, what you're thinking when you say, you know, would, would the Canadian dollar ever be a, a, um, a digital currency? In, in what way do you think that we still need to transition? How, how much more do we need to, to go uh, to reach what sort of what you have in your mind? Okay, so right now we have a central bank, right? And the central bank, it has a mandate. It, one of the reasons we have central banks that aren't part of the government apparatus is because they're supposed to be independent. And it's, it's almost like they're the, the exchequer of the Canadian tire currency, right? It's, it's really, it's really a, a, a mind game to say these pieces of paper or the numbers on your screen that represent those pieces of paper, they have value. You can trade it for a sheep, you can trade it for an ax, right? It has value and we get to print them. That's the beauty of it. We get to print them. Who's we? The, 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 the central bank, I think there's some shell game where they sort of lend the money to the government and the government can print it. And that, that's what goes out into the world, right? The problem is that um, their mandate is pegged to inflation. So the idea is there should be roughly 2% inflation. That's enough to get you out of bed in the morning because uh, things are getting a little bit more expensive. You got to get to work, but you don't, you don't hoard your money waiting uh, or if, if there's deflation, then you hoard your money saying, why should I buy a Camry this year? It'll be cheaper next year, right? So you don't want deflation. You don't want rampant inflation because things get out of hand and, and nothing functions, right? You can't make long-term decisions. So they set it around 2%. The problem is that that 2% is like the thermostat in your living room. The basement could be freezing, right? It doesn't reflect what's really going on in the economy everywhere. So some people get hurt and some people don't by having this. And I think that there's not a lot of transparency to the way, you know, the, the pink, what is it, Plinko game of where the money goes around in this trickle-down economy, it, it, it's really hard to measure. So what if instead of having this sh these shadowy organizations, these central banks, why don't we have a blockchain and why don't we have it be a distributed ledger so, so that we can see where, where the money we're minting is, what it's doing, how fast it's moving. It can be really scientific. And so these questions about is the economy moving fast enough could be very rigorous as opposed to the speculations based on asking other banks what's going on with their branches. And you could also have a really uh, programmatic and accurate way of deciding how much to create based on the size of the economy so that you don't have um, what I think is, is you know, all the lending that happens creates these bubbles. And then because we're, we're going to be, we're so afraid of the bubble coming out, we, 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 we have to make the next bubble, which is for example, asset price inflation. It's crazy that people are losing their jobs, but their houses are doubling in value. Like what's going on? It's because of these games that are going on with the, with the currency. So I don't know, I think that's one of the reasons people want to go to an extra national currency, but I think the answer could be no, let's have a national currency, but let's put it on the blockchain. And then we can even put it in the hands of the people we vote for. Oh, now we have some say in what the 
transparent mechanism does. Well, I've sucked the oxygen out of the room with that one. <laughs> uh, that's pretty deep. As a fun fact, there is a large facility in Brampton that prints money. It's, yes. uh, it's quite fascinating to look at from the outside. Not, I wouldn't say it's a tourism attraction, but it's quite different than any other building in the area. And it's not really obvious that that's what they do. I guess that makes sense. Sure. Just, and we don't have to get into economic theory because I think we've talked about NFTs and that was kind of the whole point here, but there is that little bit about, you know, when, when we hand over our money to the bank, the bank then turns that money around and lends it to somebody else. Then the lender, you know, uses it to make a purchase or, or to lend it to somebody else yet again. And there's like this whole cycle of, of money getting um, exchanging hands. And the more frequently that happens, the higher the economic output of the country, right? And you've talked, you've touched a little bit about now we could trace where, where all those transactions are happening. The only thing I think with that is that if banks currently keep it opaque, and they just change the underlying technology, I think they will continue to keep it opaque. So I'm not sure that the promise of being able to track who's got my money or where did my $1 go, how far did it go? I'm not sure that as individuals we'll be able to, uh, to be able to keep track of that. It just all goes back to, in my, in my humble opinion, is whether it's the government or the banks, they're going to choose the lowest cost meeting all minimum requirements. And there might be some determination of which functionality is more important to them, but they're essentially not going to be efficient at being able to um, handle money on their own. So they're going to outsource it and they're going to outsource it to a company or a technology that is able to do it most efficiently. And that may not be in the future. It may not be blockchain. It may be something entirely different, but where it stands today, I think there's a lot of interest from banks and, and, and national like governments in finding a more efficient way to transfer money. Because if they weren't looking for that, then there would be a, very, a much smaller market for, for these things in my humble opinion. So let me ask the last question here because we're getting close to the end of the allotted time. Um, I don't know if you saw in the news, but Tesla recently converted, I think it was 5% of its cash on hand to Bitcoin. And they did it for a couple of reasons. They, they, they stated a couple of reasons. One is, I think it was just diversity, the idea that um, you know it's good to diversify your assets on hand but also that they were thinking of accepting Bitcoin for transactions. And they were also contemplating the use of Bitcoin as a way of, because they're an international company, they have to convert currency all the time. And this might be a way to sort of avoid doing that, that you could actually, because that's one of the justifications of an international currency or an extra national currency is that you don't have to do all these conversions you were talking about earlier, those, the, the buy and the sell prices at the airport um, a smaller version of that happens with every transaction through a bank too. 
So do you think that this is a harbinger of things to come? Fabio? Well, honestly, I'm not sure. Who, who can say what runs through the mind of Elon Musk? <laughs> what, uh, what we do know based on our conversation the last time is, I think he's a really smart guy and he's got a play and he's got an angle here somewhere. Just because I don't necessarily see it or fully understand it um, doesn't mean it's not a, a good one. Interesting, the, the angle that you talked about with the, the, the changing of the currencies. And as, as they develop more and more uh, production facilities around the world in different jurisdictions using different currencies, you know, I, I could see that maybe you're right. Maybe that, that does become a bigger problem where, you know, I, I believe that they're opening up a, a plant in Germany. They've got one open in, in China already. So interesting if they were to use Bitcoin as the sort of the backbone within their own company. Of course, it goes back to our earlier discussion about Bitcoin as an asset versus a currency. And that brings along its own complexities. I guess, right? Because you're still, at the end of the day, you still have an, a, a value associated to a Bitcoin and that value can go up and down. But then again, I guess world currencies go up and down against each other all the time. So interesting. Adam, what are you thinking? It's uh, a bit of a publicity stunt in my humble opinion. Uh, I think the right choice would have been to pick a stable coin because if the idea is really to embrace digital currency, then you pick something that doesn't go up and down in value because it's almost like saying, you know what? doesn't matter. You want to buy this car? If it's worth 20,000 tomorrow and 50,000 the day after, it really doesn't matter. I don't think that's a right kind of signal. I think Bitcoin, everybody's like, hey, what's Bitcoin? Oh, hey, Elon in, invest, invested in Dogecoin, which, by the way, is all about a meme. Like, you know, people latch onto it. At, it's a media hype and it just pushes the, I think the whole agenda is, is not necessarily um, blockchain. It's just a media component. So, um, you know, well, I completely agree that Elon Musk likes attention. Um, he, he likes it because uh, I think he just likes it for its own sake. It's like he's buying the NFT just because he wants it. But I think he also gets an economic benefit from it. And that is that people pay a lot more attention, are much more likely to invest, much more likely to work there. But hear this out. So you raised... Two, uh, you made me think of two points. One is about the volatility. And if you look at the volatility of the Canadian dollar against the US dollar, it's not very volatile because there's so much trade that goes on between the two. If we get to a point where Bitcoin occupies as much economic space as, say, you know, the Australian dollar, I think that the volatility will go down because there's going to be so much arbitrage that could happen if it didn't. Like you could just say, I'm going to buy a Tesla today and wait until tomorrow and sell it for, you know what I mean? Like it would, it would, there would be so many people who would be trying to slice into that, that volatility and make money that it would actually dampen out. So I, I don't know if that's a knock against it, but hear, hear me out on this one point. I think that partly it's not just attention getting and it's not just, um, you know, an effort to save money or even make money with, with Bitcoin. I think it's more than that. I think that 
Elon Musk, like a lot of billionaires, um, kind of doesn't see a lot of point to government. And he certainly doesn't want to have to go to Mars and start using the greenback. I think he's actually thinking that there should be a future where, where it, we have a programmatic infrastructure for democracy and a programmatic infrastructure for currency, and we leave the politicians out of it. I think that this is actually a worldview thing going on. Again, why Bitcoin? Why not Ethereum? Why not some other coin that you know is a little bit less contentious when it comes to you know energy consumption? Like if something's proof of stake, it doesn't take all that energy to produce coin. You know, if if your really world of view is that it should be a decentralized cryptocurrency, then invest in something that's actually future generation and. You know, Elon is a forward-thinking guy. You know, Bitcoin is old news. Pick something that's forward-thinking, in my humble opinion. So, no, no offense, Elon. Well, I'll tell you what. Since I missed the boat on Bitcoin, I hope you're right. And I'll, I just want to thank you both for joining me on the show. My guests today have been Adam Trent and Fabio Banculin. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks very much, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Any articles we mention will be in the show notes along with Fabio's and Adam's contact information. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 